Hello and welcome to the European Conversations podcast brought to you by the Scottish Centre on European Relations and the European Movement in Scotland. I'm Kirsty Hughes and this week I'm in conversation with Luca Fries. She's director of Denmark's Think Tank Europa and former Minister of Climate, Energy and Gender Equality in the Danish government. Thank you very much for joining me today. There's an awful lot we can talk about in terms of the current state of Europe and the European Union, Britain and Scotland's relations with the EU. But to start with a very general question, how do you see the EU's outlook at the moment? It's, it's got a lot of challenges, but is it basically quite positive in your, in your view? Well, thanks for having me. Well, I mean, I would say uh, that until... June, July, I thought that the EU was sort of getting back on track with regards to the uh, overall crisis with the uh, recovery fund, with the ability actually to agree also upon a model which was more focused upon solidarity than at the beginning of the crisis. But what's happened now, I would say basically since November uh, has been sort of this internal race for vaccines, which I find worrying uh, for the European Union's development. You could say the EU has been through many crises with regards to solidarity, let's say the financial crisis, the euro crisis, and also the immigration crisis. But this solidarity crisis is actually about life and death. And that's probably why you see this very, very intense debate, but also the European Union having an internal competition but also basically not being able to play a role at the global level in this vaccine diplomacy that is really sort of playing a major role right now and which could have major repercussions for the EU, almost a new Nord Stream 2, you could say, situation. If you have Russia, which is doing now distributing vaccines to a number of countries in the Balkans, but also new Huawei sort of incidents uh, with also, again, uh, China then being very active within Europe concerning vaccine diplomacy. So I think that is something one should be really sort of uh, focused upon in the coming months. So we've got a big geopolitics of vaccines and COVID. And as you say, it's, it's not only geopolitics, there's an internal EU politics, there's been an EU UK dimension that's that's not being exactly vis-a-vis <laughs> Northern Ireland. What I also noticed looking at, at the news is that whereas some of the, the bigger countries like Germany are, are getting very irate around vaccines and whether Brussels has been, if not incompetent, not competent enough, then a lot of the smaller countries are saying that that, that was quite important for us that we do it together because we don't have the same muscle and bargaining power. And, and so it was important for solidarity. Is, is that the view in Denmark or, or is it mixed in Denmark? Well, that's how it started. I mean, uh, the Danish government being very pro the European track, as it is called, uh, and also sort of underlining the fact that uh, if we had to negotiate, just as Denmark, <laughs> global vaccine market, then we would have been in trouble. But I would say the last couple of weeks, there has been a considerable criticism of the European track. And now the Danish prime minister has actually just over the weekend said that she's now considering whether there should be some kind of deal with Israel uh, on both distributing and producing uh, vaccine. And if one sort of looks and speaks to speak to Danes at the moment, which is kind of difficult because you have to do it via phone or via Zoom, I can sense of a very sort of critical sort of wave now against the European Union. You can say that it's unfair that it's well all the member states constantly had to agree uh, to the various of deals that the European Union was, were make, was making, and you also had steering group and member states were represented. 
but it is now more or less turning into the second migration crisis, you could say, where you have sort of really people being very agitated uh, towards the European Union. And you could also say a number of, of member states could actually also lead to the, the fall of various governments. I mean, if you look upon the situation in France, uh, President Macron is, I presume, rather worried now when he looks upon the overall debate and also Marine Le Pen certainly getting back into the polls. And in Germany, it's already had uh, sort of impact upon the race to succeed Chancellor Merkel with the Minister of, uh, of Health, Jens Spahn, no longer being sort of the lead of this contest. So it's really an issue which is uh, having a major impact also on domestic politics. I think that is new, which is kind of interesting that now nobody would make the argument that EU politics is, is not domestic politics. It definitely is domestic politics. It is uh, an issue that has sort of gone from the sort of end of the sort of national newspapers to, to, the, to the front pages. I mean, a number of Danish newspapers run major articles of this every day. It's very interesting, isn't it? So, so from what you say, there was that more positive looking period where people were saying EU often thrives in the end from crises and look at the agreement for the European Commission to raise funds. The recovery fund is, is taking time, but it's, it's rolling out and that, that's really important. But the issue around borders, vaccines, Brussels struggling to, to cope with something it's, it's not really had competence or experience of in the past. And from what you're saying, that's still all got a long way to run before we look back, hopefully, at some point and say, oh, we grew out of this crisis. Yeah, obviously, you could say the jury is still out. I mean, in particular, if one looks upon the battle on vaccines, I mean, that could change. I mean, also, if you look upon Britain having chosen this policy of of uh, having not the, the two uh, jabs within a, a very short period. So one looks upon the figures, you can see that, well, there are differences depending on what chart you actually look upon. But I think what's interesting is also what, when you mention borders. I mean, I was looking upon the, the uh, German uh, policy of reintroducing a, a very tough uh, border control at the borders towards uh, Austria and the Czech Republic. And there one would have to say that for Angela Chancellor Angela Merkel, this is a major sort of step and also turnaround compared to the uh, sort of policy during the first wave. Obviously, you could say Germany at the end also introduced border controls, but it was heavily contested, particularly also by Angela Merkel. And the argument at that time was made that there was no sort of health argument for reintroducing border controls. But that has changed completely because of the various sort of mutation of the uh, of the uh, COVID-19 virus. And that is, I think, an interesting development to follow as well. I thought that once you got into the second wave, you would learn from the first wave and build upon that. And that's not really happening to the extent that I was hoping. I think that's quite similar in some ways. In, in the UK, you know, we've, we've done almost the worst in the world for deaths, sadly, even if at the moment we're doing well for vaccines. But we didn't seem to learn from all the mistakes in the first wave when we got into the autumn and now early 2021 wave. That's very disappointing, obviously, when, when we don't learn rapidly from our mistakes. If I can move our conversation on a little bit now, or backwards, sadly, in a way to Brexit. I think we all hoped we could stop talking about Brexit after four and a half years. But obviously, <laughs> Brexit's had a big impact for the European Union and for Denmark, I'm thinking specifically. Denmark joined at the same time as the UK. Denmark and the UK got Euro opt-outs at, at the same time. And, and so despite the fact that the UK was a, one of the big three member states, there was maybe quite a lot of similarities. So how, how do you think that's changed in a way 
Denmark's European policy and what sort of impact has it had? Well, I think that first of all, one have to say that uh, we have a party in, in Denmark, uh, the Danish People's Party, who is still arguing uh, for a Dexit so that uh, Denmark should uh, follow Britain. The argument has been that one has to see how the actual deal works out. So, so they may still change their mind, presumably, if, if it continues. So the, I mean, if one looks upon the, the uh, number of companies that move from Britain uh, to Europe and so forth, one could definitely make the case that it's not been a huge smashing success, but, but that's the argument. They want to see how the deal turns out, and then they could possibly then also go for a, a referendum in, in Denmark. I mean, they'll hardly have support for that at the moment. One looks upon the Danish sort of... Uh, Social Democratic Party, the Liberal Party, uh, they are all supporting and wouldn't, wouldn't even debate uh, whether Denmark uh, should, should leave the European Union. But it is an interesting phenomenon that we have a party that actually has that, uh, takes that attitude. Then I would say that Brexit has, um, has been a rather big shock for the Danish uh, political elite. I mean, first of all, that it could happen, as you say, we joined at the same time. And afterwards, there's been this shock that, goodness, how on earth can we then pursue our overall European policy without Britain? And we already saw that in, in July with the big battle got to the recovery fund, where Denmark then had to team up with other countries. I mean, the so-called Frugal Four Alliance that then had to be developed at rather great speed. Um, and I think that's going to be a strategy from the Danish government side to use that alliance within the Frugal Four on, on various issues. But I think that could be rather problematic because Denmark, as you also indicated, is outside the euro and outside defense, outside justice and home affairs. So there are many issues where we cannot play a role at all. And that's going to be problematic then for the alliance of the Frugal Four. But the expectation was that the Danish government would now sort of really step up its uh, various sort of uh, game with regards to finding new allies. But I, I guess also the overall COVID-19 sort of crisis has put that on hold. I mean, that's, you rarely hear the Danish foreign minister speaking about European affairs. You constantly see him sort of being on television debating about sort of giving news about where you cannot travel to and <laughs> cancelling the various vacations. So that's apparently the core role of being a minister of foreign affairs right now. So there are not really new initiatives coming out from the Danish government with regards to, to EU affairs. It's true. It's so, so changed our news and our politics yeah. for the moment, hasn't it? Understandably. But there has also been a, a lot of shifts by different member states because of Brexit, looking at, looking at how to form new alliances or at least deepen alliances. How do you view that in terms of, I, I know you focus a lot on Germany in some of your research and we always talk about the Franco-German relationship mm. at one point or other when we talk about EU politics but do you think it's made them more powerful even though Britain had opt-outs people quite often say to me well it did in some ways help to balance the the relative power of the Franco-German relationship. Oh yes and that is a key worry here in, in Denmark again if you speak to to politicians but also uh, civil servants in, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that you always had this triangle and then Denmark could also position itself in this, in this triangle. And that is no longer the case. Um, and um, you could also say Germany changed its position with regards to the recovery fund that you could actually have common depth in Europe. And that was a big shock, again, shock to the Danish political elite because one kind of thought that, well, Germany would, would have that 
in regards to refusing common debt, which is also a Danish uh, sort of great sort of uh, policy uh, sort of a conviction. So the fact that you see Germany moving more towards France has also led to sort of worries uh, in, in Denmark. And they obviously one will have to see who wins the, the next German election. Uh, Still, presume it's going to be the the CDU and so forth, but but there that could also have some changes if certainly the uh, the minister president of Bavaria <laughs> would become the new chancellor of Germany. I presume that would sort of change so the outlook with regards to the foreign policy coming more from the south from Bavaria. So that is probably also an issue we'd look into in the future. That's very interesting, I think, because as you know, there's there's a debate at the moment about whether as we come out of the COVID recession, will the EU have to look again at its deficit limits and, and not have maybe such tough deficit and debt limits? It just won't be realistic. And for, from what you're saying, Denmark being one of the, the frugal four, you, you might be pretty wary about that or even opposed to that. But I wonder, even though you're forming these alliances with some states in the Eurozone, are you going to have a big voice in such a debate with your opt-out on the euro? No, I mean, that's not going to be a bit realistic. Um, and that also goes for the, I think, very interesting debate about whether the recovery fund should turn into some kind of a constant phenomenon within the European uh, integration. So the so-called Hamilton moment, um, that would be an issue where Denmark probably have difficulties pushing that dossier or, or, or sort of rather so making sure it doesn't happen. But um, I think that will also require Denmark to change uh, its European policy, policy from being very reactive to being more proactive. And I think that is a challenge now that Britain is gone. Then you have basically to try to, to get in and sort of have your impact upon the various proposals before they actually sort of uh, really uh, sort of a done deal, you could say, and being presented to, to other countries. And there Denmark has been very sort of um, passive the last, I would say, last basic last seven, 10 years. I mean, the last sort of major impact Denmark had upon the uh, agenda of the European Union is an issue that's close to heart all to do. That was the enlargement issue. I mean, but Denmark really, really played a major role in 2002, sort of closing the accession deals with, with all these uh, Central and Eastern European countries. So, so there one has to realize that we have to sort of be more proactive in the next couple of years. But I think what could also be an interesting sort of area for the frugal fund where Denmark could play a big role, that is to focus upon the recovery fund and make sure that, that the money set aside actually goes to the right sort of policy areas. I mean, we all agreed that the recovery fund and the recovery or the reform plans that uh, the member states should develop, they should sort of focus upon climate change or sort of the green green growth and then digital society. And now you could see hmm, that's kind of not really being the case. You see number of these reform plans sort of being postponed. And you will actually see Germany coming out with a plan or sort of a, a first edition of it where it uses the recovery money then to basically to uh, so to finance already uh, already made decisions that they're, that, that they're taken. And if that sort of continues, then I'm sure that there will various Southern European countries will say, so I'm dealing with Malhaben. And what then happens to the public support with regards to sort of getting uh, sort of support then for continuing such a, a major endeavor, such a recovery fund. So there again, we have a test for public opinion within the next couple of months or maybe year or years. Yeah. <laughs>
Denmark certainly, when I talk to other EU member states about alliances in the EU today, Denmark certainly has quite a reputation alongside Sweden, I'd say, for, for being an important leadership voice on climate change. And as, as you say, if the recovery isn't genuinely green, given that before COVID, the whole point of central point of, of the EU's strategy was the, the European Green Deal and, and really putting climate center stage. That, that's going to be very damaging and very disappointing. You, you, of course, you were climate and energy minister and minister for gender equality. And we've got the very normal combination. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So almost half half of the policy dossier. You were really the co-prime minister, I think. I used to say that uh, that uh, electric ladyland by Jimi Hendrix was my theme song. Very good. <laughs> Combining the two dossiers. Yeah. I, I'll have to see if I can feed that into the podcast. Um, <laughs> as, as you know, we've got the big climate summit coming up. We hope it, it actually happens. It was postponed from last November the COP26 is going to be held in Glasgow in Scotland. The UK is co-host alongside Italy. Is this, I mean, climate is always a crunch moment. It's a climate emergency and we're never doing enough. But how important is this? It will come hopefully as we are emerging from the COVID crisis and we are running out of time. And as you and I know, it's very hard to push politics forward fast enough we're used to it going through compromises steps forward and steps back and we don't really have time for that do we so so what would your message for that summit be well obviously one would have to say that the uh, chances of having uh, sort of success in glasgow uh, depends upon the COVID crisis i mean if we have more mutations and so forth then it's just going to be difficult for politicians to have a climate high up on their to-do list. I mean, that's just a sort of a realpolitik sort of point that one will have to make. But otherwise, I'd say that uh, there is a, a great chance that Glasgow could play a role. I mean, you could use the momentum from Joe Biden now sort of checking back into the climate change negotiations with uh, ratifying the, the Paris Agreement. Uh, you have, I mean, the a high record number of uh, countries coming out with uh, plans for carbon emissions, lowering carbon emissions, the highest number you've ever had. Uh, so you see that a number of countries are actually sort of really stepping up their game. And the European Union could strike an alliance with the United States on trying sort of to, to persuade countries to up their game even more. So I do see some great opportunities and I also see the COP as a way to, to put back on the agenda, the overall issue on how you can build back better. So basically use all the, the funding also for, uh, I mean, basically for the overall sort of recovery of, of nation states so to, to make sure that a lot of that money goes into the, to the green area. I mean, that could be a, a major sort of important development if we actually manage to get sort of this double track policy uh, moving. And that's going to be a policy agenda where you can where you can you can raise that at the COP at all these various sort of meetings that you have that are not just about sort of the, the sort of ability to agree within the UN framework because that could be very slow and tiring. But the COP is also a huge sort of opportunity to make the case for for green growth. And I think one should not underestimate that. And it's also going to be very very important that one finds money uh, for the developing countries that are now struggling with the uh, COVID-19 
at the same time as they have to deal with climate change. That goes back to where we started our conversation that one should definitely remember that this COVID crisis could also increase inequality and could actually lead to a situation where Africa could turn into even more lost continent than it is at the moment if we do not change our path within the European Union and the United States, really focusing upon vaccine diplomacy to use that expression again. I think it's, it's a key point, isn't it? At, at the moment, we, we've all been looking in many ways so inwards. And if we're going to forget about the rest of the world, we, we know this is going to go wrong, whether on vaccines or on climate. But perhaps if we're lucky and stay on top of the COVID crisis, perhaps by autumn, people will be ready and there's a real chance to push for a global reset, both in terms of support for developing countries on COVID and on climate together. And it, it could be looking more optimistically, it could be a, a really important moment. I want to, before, before we end, I, I wanted to ask you a, a bit more about Scotland, the, the COP is <laughs> in Scotland, but obviously we're, we're, or the Scottish government or Glasgow are the local hosts, but the UK government with Italy is, is the hosts. But as you know, we've got a big <laughs> debate about independence in Scotland. It's always there, whatever else is going on. And I know I'd be surprised if you expressed an opinion on that as such, but the question people often want an answer to is if Scotland chose independence in a legal and constitutional way in agreement with a process with London, would it have a straightforward path back to the European Union if this happened in the next few years? I would say from having studied enlargement for quite some years, I think that's going to be difficult. I mean, certainly you could say jumping the queue to use that expression. I'm rather certain that Southeastern Europe, I mean, they're already sort of a very disappointed with the European Union not living up to its various promises. And exactly, you could say also, again, adding the point with regards to COVID-19, they are really, really sort of disappointed with the EU for not delivering uh, on, on vaccines. If you would ask from a Danish perspective, I mean, I'm rather certain that although it's going to be difficult for the government, for, from, but from a public opinion point of view, I mean, that would be popular, you could say, you could mm -hmm. sort of regain parts of, parts of the influence and the relationship that you lost uh, when, when Britain left the European Union with Scotland. Uh, Scotland is also sometimes perceived as a northern country. You could strike an alliance with regards to that. And you could also say that Denmark, I mean, we have a tradition then of being flexible with regards to EU membership with all our opt-outs, but also going back to the 80s where Denmark actually convinced the European Union that Greenland could leave uh, the EC at that time, although that was not really part of, of the treaty. So you could say that maybe one could go back into the history book and then search for some flexibility there. I'm not saying that the Danish government will do that, but I think there is a tradition at least where one could argue that one should, should look into that. It's the point I think you and I know that there's, there's the rules for how accession work and then there's the politics of accession. Exactly. And I know people in Scotland, and I would say there isn't a queue as such in the sense that each country has to show it's, yeah. made, it's made the right progress, but there will be a, a politics of it as well as the, the technical side of it. If it, if it did happen, it's not going to happen in the next couple of years in terms of rejoicing. And <laughs> yeah. might perhaps, but but the, you know it will, it will take some time. These things take time. But imagine in ten years, Scotland is a small new northern member state of the yeah. EU. What advice 
given Denmark's much longer experience, if you were giving a new Scotland member state advice, what, what was the top two or three things you might say to it? I would try to join the Northern Council. So <laughs> immediately, I mean, because that could also give you the uh, legitimacy of being a Northern uh, European country. And that sort of cooperation, as I'm sure you know, is sort of an informal one sort of between the Northern uh, countries. I mean, with uh, Sweden and Finland and Norway and so forth. There's also been uh, the attempt to uh, have cooperation with the, with the Baltic countries. Uh, so they will kind of put you in a position where you could, I mean, maybe then also leapfrog on, on that cooperation. But I think also get the legitimacy of being a Northern European country if you could join the, the, Northern, the, the Northern Council. So I think that would be the first thing that I, would, that I would look into. Secondly, I would make sure that I have public opinion on board in, in a much better way than we have had in Denmark. I mean, going back to when Denmark joined the European Union, the membership was sold in quotation marks as, as a purely economic enterprise, selling Danish bacon <laughs> to, to the UK and never sort of looking into the political aspects of the membership. And that is something that's come back to haunt all the Danish governments, in particular when we had all the referenda. So I think that's going to be a really important remark for my side to look into. And thirdly, I mean, building the alliances. I mean, and you can already do that now. I mean, obviously, you need alliances to be able then to, to join. I mean, so, so that's going to be important. But then you can use those alliances once then. And now I'm really talking about science fiction here. Once you then become member of, of the European Union. Well, we're, we're talking about scenarios, let's say, but yeah, that, that, that's really helpful. And I, and I think I think the alliances point is, is, is really important because what I often say in talks, given Brexit has sadly happened, is we're still a European island. Scotland's a European yeah. country. UK, whether it likes it or not, is a European country. And we have to still talk to each other and build networks. Yeah. And, and on something like climate change, where Denmark's got a lot to offer in policy terms, so has Scotland. So I think even though we've made it harder from our side, or <laughs> that I didn't vote for it, but you know, the majority in the UK made it harder, but it's very important to keep going. So, But there has, has there been any debate about this Nordic Council idea or, I mean, in, in Scotland? Well, I think I've heard one of the former Liberal MEPs, you probably know, yeah, exactly. Gra Graham Watson, yeah has yeah, yeah. suggested it. And I think he's, I may be misquoting him here, but I think he's suggested, could we could we even join it now? Can we join it as a country, mm. but not a state? And I, I don't know if that's possible. So there's not a, a lot of discussion, but there, there is, there's been quite a lot of debate and about the Nordic countries. I guess because mm. we're a similar size to you, to Norway, to Finland, yeah. we're often looking across and saying, oh, how do they do this and that? whether in the EU debate or just more generally in the sort of yeah. social market model debate. Don't you still have many students coming from Norway? I mean, sort of uh, on exchanges and doing their degrees. I know this is also going to be a complicated issue. I mean, obviously now. Uh, now with, now the, with, with Erasmus having gone, there's still yeah. some discussions to see if we could keep it with, for Scotland yeah. and Wales, but that doesn't look very promising. But no, I, I think there is a lot of consideration on that. And, and there's been some participation by the Scottish government in, in around the Arctic Council. So, so yeah, exactly. Right. That's also a very important issue. Yeah, yeah. There's obviously also, I mean, one wouldn't have to start being a member of the Nordic Council. One could obviously start sort of considering an observer status. I mean, so that could, as you know, once again, with enlargement could be sort of step-by-step -step approach. I think that's a good idea. I think that's a really <laughs> positive point.
to end this very wide-ranging conversation. So thank you for your patience in, in covering so many topics. Thank, right, thank you very you. much. There we must end it. I'm Kirsty Hughes, and I was in conversation with Luca Fries. <laughs>